Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card, issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval terms apply. Want to learn a new language? And who doesn't? Well, experience immersive lessons from the most trusted language app, Rosetta Stone. You know you keep telling yourself you want to learn a new language. The true accent feature even gives feedback on your pronunciation so you can speak the language like a native. Find lessons as short as 10 minutes, making it easy for you to learn anytime, anywhere. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Star Talk Radio listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash startalk today. I'm Gary O'Reilly. I'm Chuck Nice. And this is Playing With Science. And this time we take to the track on two wheels. And yes. as oh, Yes. And as always, our need for speed will be equally matched by our need to know. Yeah, yeah. And our need to know is still our need for speed. And did you ever wonder how and why a motorcycle racer goes through a bend almost horizontal? Well, the man with the answers is University of Arizona's professor of optical sciences and physics as a well-known, passionate motorcycle collector and rider himself. We're talking about Professor Charles Falco. He'll be joining us. Mm, Very interesting man, indeed. Um, I'm back for another spin around the Playing With Science track and joining us first in the studio is our very good friend and doer of daring deeds. Yes, the adventure journalist, Jim Clash. Jim, welcome back. Jesus, thanks, guys. I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm becoming a regular here. Yeah, man, we love having you here. Don't worry, you get charged you, rent before you leave. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> all the stuff that we only think about doing. Oh, yeah, it's a, it's a boy's own story. I, I mean, I am very, very envious. Now, because this is two wheels and you're more in tune with four, but you have been on a motorbike at 140 miles per hour. Which is crazy. Mm-hmm. Says him. Yeah. <laughs> Who's been a lot faster on a motorbike. Not that much faster, right. but I've yeah. done it. I've done, so, I've done pretty So this was uh, a, the Superbike Pro <laughs> racer, Chris Ulrich, and he went yeah. to Sturgis Motorcycle Rally last summer in Dakota. So are you kind of finding your way <laughs> towards the two-wheel sector of motorsport? Or are you just, mm, what's this about? You know, when I was a kid, my mom always said, you can't drive a motorcycle, you'll lose a limb. And I was in the very formative years, so I never got on with motorcycles. I'm, I'm afraid of them. However, I couldn't pass up the chance when Chris Ulrich uh, offered me a chance to get on the back of his motorcycle at 140 miles an hour. Uh, he also took me through a road course where we were literally, you know, almost, That's... you know, where your knees are dragging exactly. uh, and that sort of thing. So... Oh, that, I, was that the first time you'd ever done that? That's, that's the first time I've ever been on a motorcycle. Okay. Really? How, <laughs> how did that work between your ears, that space between your ears when you're thinking, 
oh my word, I'm about to kiss the black stuff here. This is this is asphalt. This is tarmac. This is not good. Again, I I, I had faith in Chris. Yeah. Uh, I watched him do it with someone else before I did it, mm-hmm. and uh, and I thought this is my story. I put myself into that role of of the journalist, and I have to write about this. So, rather than being fearful, I was thinking, okay, what is this sensation like? How am I going to write about it? And you know, the fear kind of went away. So do you start this when you're writing with just, uh, <laughs> I start with how a... Do you pick, how, how do you, from a journalistic point of view, I'm interested now, approach that looking back at your experience? Well, again, um, in a lot of my experiences, I have to be the active participant. I have to drive the car or ski to the South Pole or whatever it is. Uh, in this experience, I was just riding on the back of a motorcycle. Um, so, Which, by the way, is also active in itself. Because well, yeah, you, you have to move. Right, you have. Yeah, yeah, if you don't engage with right. the process, right. you are fighting against Ex- exactly, the exactly, exactly. So even your passenger, by the way, can make a ride. Um, you know, very dangerous. Sure. If you have the wrong passenger on the back of your bike, they they are putting your life in Absolutely. jeopardy. You know. Yeah, they talked to me a little bit before I got on. Okay. But um, yeah, I mean, I was a passenger. Now I did go to Sturgis, which is where they have the big motorcycle rally every year in South Dakota. A lot, a lot of hogs in Sturgis. It was it was amazing. Yeah. The, the, the number of different people there. There was a lady who was in her nineties who still rode her motorcycle to Sturgis from New Jersey. Um, what's his name from the Doobie Brothers was there. He's a motorcycle guy. Um, Pat Mo- Morris or Pat somebody. Um, uh, Tom Berenger was there from Platoon. Wow. He's a motorcycle guy. I mean, it was fascinating. Uh, they all wanted me to get a tattoo. They wanted to get the New York guy drunk and get a tattoo, but I, I didn't do it. <laughs> yeah, um, good for you. Yeah. Okay, you've heard of the... Isle of Man TT motorcycle yeah, festival. Yeah. It's over a period of a week. Um, yeah, I think if you just heard Chuck say, it's amazing. If you imagine there's a whole load of public roads and therefore this is sort of quintessential village, hill, slightly mountainous area on the Isle of Man, which is between Ireland and the west coast of England. Mm. It's this peculiar little place, yet they open it up. Uh, I think it was Frank Lids from Sports Illustrated back in 2003, 2004, said it it is a test of nerve and speed and possibly the most dangerous sporting event in the world. Wow. I got to tell you, I, I've, I've never been to the Isle of Man, but I've watched it on television. NBC used to, it always comes on a Saturday afternoon, and I love it. What gets me about the whole race is on the, in the professional side, is that the spectators are standing right on the course, which is dangerous in and of itself. It's like the Tour de France, where you see them lying down the street. Exactly. You're going to be hit (laughs) by a bicycle rather than a a, a thousand cc. Super bike, and I'm sure, and I'm sure they have accidents with the spectators. Oh, for sure. Yes, they do. What I'm sensing here is a man who has made a reputation as an adventurer, an adventure journalist. Took one look at the Isle of Man TT and went, "No, thank you." A man who has swam in the Arctic at the North Pole. At the North Pole. Yeah. The man who's been at 253 miles an hour driving his the car himself looked at the TT and went, "Nope." Yeah. I mean, do you just do you, you so it's so funny that you 
who've done all these like incredibly, I will say, adrenaline inducing activities. Mm. Someone like you has never had um, a desire to drive and ride motorcycles. I haven't. Uh, I knew it was the cool thing to do when, back in high school and college. Uh, but again, my mother at that early age telling me I'd lose a limb if I got on a motorcycle uh, stayed with me. And uh, again, I'm becoming a little more open to it now, not to this TT thing. That's, <laughs> that's nuts. But, but, but yeah, I was asking somebody the other day at the Explorers Club about how to get a license and what to do and what bikes are in and what bikes are out. He's got a Harley. And, uh, yeah. So I won't say no forever, but I'll say no to that tt well i'll say no to the tt i mean listen i can't wait to get i'm i i was saying before the show uh i'm definitely getting a bike again i like once you do it you once you bike you for the Can't rest get rid of, of it. the rest of your life you just you gotta scratch that itch yeah. anytime i see somebody on a motorcycle i think god what have i done we're gonna take our break yeah we have got a unique character professor charles falco is not just a physicist he is a motorcycle aficionado a man passionate and a man responsible for being one of the curators of the art and science of motorcycles which was one of guggenheim's most popular ever exhibits Uh, stick around we'll be back shortly sweet Whether you're a family vacation traveler, business tripper, or long weekend adventurer, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. And that's good, because there are a lot of me's. Choice Hotels has over 7,400 locations and 22 brands, including Comfort Hotels, Radisson Hotels, and Cambria Hotels. Get the best value for your money when you book with Choice Hotels. Cambria Hotels feature locally inspired hotel bars with specialty cocktails and downtown locations in the center of it all. Hey, that's me. Radisson Hotels have flexible workspaces to get the most of your business travel and on-site restaurants. That's me, too. And at Comfort Hotels, you'll enjoy free hot breakfast with fresh waffles, great pools for the entire family, and spacious rooms. Hey, that's me, too. I guess I'm just going to have to stay at all of them. Choice Hotels has a stay for any of you. Book direct at choicehotels.com, where travel comes true eBay Motors is here for the ride. Elbow grease and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need. eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Welcome back to Playing With Science. Today, we're exploring motorcycle racing. And with us in the studio, we still have adventure journalist and our very good friend, Jim Clash. But joining us now to break down the physics is Professor Charles Falco. Welcome to Playing With Science, Professor. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, let's, let's just give you a proper uh, introduction here. You are the Chair of Condensed Matter Physics, Professor of Optical Sciences and Professor of Physics at the University of Arizona, expert on the magnetic and optical properties of thin film materials. But the reason why you're really here, sir, is you are a motorcycle aficionado, a man that owns probably more than 15 bikes and at one point was part of the curating team for the Guggenheim Museum's exhibition of of art and science of motorcycles. Have I left anything out? 
No, that's, uh, you've got everything. <laughs> I'm pleased, because uh, so that, that is a serious role of honour. So uh, we are yeah. thrilled that you're on board. Um, where does it start for you? Yes. Where, where, where'd your love of motorcycles come from? When I was eight years old, yeah. somebody gave a ride across Des Moines, Iowa, on the back of a Triumph Thunderbird motorcycle. And the reason why I know that is that Triumph Thunderbird was the actually the motorcycle that... Uh, Marlon Brando had in the wild one, yeah. but a modified, greatly modified version won the world land speed record at Bonneville, and for two years they had on the, the gas tank uh, world's fastest motorcycle, and I was young enough that I thought I was on the world's fastest motorcycle, and I was hooked for life at that point. Oh, at eight years of age, you yeah, would. That's so, yeah, cool. it's uh, so maybe you know this because you're a, a historian as well. Uh, so you said that that modified version became the world's fastest motorcycle at Bonneville. Uh, Triumph also has a motorcycle yes. called Bonneville. Yeah. Is is that because of that time trial success? Exactly. Oh, cool! It, it won the uh, it set the world land speed record in 1956, I believe. And so for the next two years, before they introduced the model of Bonneville, the Triumph Thunderbird had the decal on it that said, world's fastest motorcycle. That's so cool to hear you say that. I'm getting so excited right now. You're going to go and buy yourself. Well, no, that's going to be my next bike, by the way, is a Triumph Bonneville. I'm just letting everybody know right now. That's, that's All right. you know. Mm-hmm. Yes, red tank with the... What's that? You could do far worse. <laughs> Thank you, sir. See, as a Brit, I would endorse the buying of a Triumph, of course. We've sort of documented your the genesis of your passion for motorcycles. Um, being a physicist, has it been a help or a hindrance being able to understand fully all of the science involved in getting the best out of your motorcycles? I would say... Um, not necessarily the physics of the motorcycle, but the mechanics of the motorcycle has been intrinsic to all my work, my scientific work, my as an experimental scientist. I think in terms of, um, of I have instruments we've built that are, at least in my brain, if no place else, based on what I know about um, motorcycle mechanics. Wow! So how how interesting that if you approached the whole realm of your optical science through the lens of a pun intended a motorcycle. It um, in fact, I mean, there's only three things that I pref uh, interested in professionally: physics, motorcycles, and art, and they all interrelate for me. Really? So now, when you say art, because I can see physics and motorcycle, because one, the two are inexorably tied together, everything from uh, gyroscopes to um, uh, laws of motion—you name it. It's you know, a motorcycle is nothing more than a rolling physics class, as far as I'm concerned. But I'm interested to know where the art ties in. So, um, if you look up the Hockney Falco thesis, David Hockney. The, arguably the world's most famous living artist, he and I, um, about well, 15 years ago now, discovered that artists of the repute of Jan van Eyck or uh, Bellini, Caravaggio, used lenses to project images 200 years before um, Galileo, before people even thought lenses could be used. And the reason why I was able to make those discoveries with David was I've been interested in art and photography um, since I was um, five years old or so. So uh, those passions of 
my physics and optics came from my interest in motorcycles and photography. Wow. That's I have to tell you, that is a fascinating journey uh, in terms of coming to science through, you know, uh, through your per personal passions. I mean, there are so many. I'm always interested when you talk to science. How is it that they come to their love of their particular scientific discipline or their study? Um, and, you know, every scientist has a story. And I have to tell you, yours may be the most interesting. Yeah, I, I did flag up at the top of the show that uh, we would find you very interesting. Um, um, has the art of the motorcycle kind of evolved for you through engineering, through shapes, through... The interest with motorcycles, the interesting thing about them is um, there's very little on a motorcycle. There's two wheels, an engine, a gas tank. Yeah. You would think that there, you don't have much choice as a designer, but you can have two motorcycles that you could um, orally describe um, would sound identical. One would be incredibly ugly and the other is a beautiful work of art. And so the, the fact that minor differences in how these components are laid out, minor differences in curves make all the difference in the world with the beauty of the machine. Some of it's aerodynamic. Some of it is intrinsically um, dictated by the physics. But another way of looking at the art or the design of motorcycles, you can watch the design of motorcycles evolve throughout the 20th and 21st century mm -hmm. by watching material science, materials physics evolve. So that every time some new material is, is developed, it's incorporated in motorcycles. Okay, so let's go to the, the, the back end of the 20th century and move it forward to where we are now. What has really changed the game in terms of material engineering? Um, carbon fiber entered yeah. about that time. So, and the ability to um, create complex shapes through um, computerized aided uh, TIG welding, to, uh, tungsten inert gas welding. So you could take um, something that wasn't possible not many years before that. You could decide a wrought um, piece of aluminum was good for one function, cast aluminum for something else, welded box section of aluminum for something else and you could combine them with tungsten inert gas welding and create a structure where every aspect of it is optimum for its particular purpose that wasn't possible before wow and you know what's funny i just thought carbon fiber was used so that they could make motorcycles really expensive <laughs> that that too that too yeah. <laughs> hey also me, go ahead um, go ahead Part of materials technology is the evolution of microprocessors. And so uh, fly-by-wire computer-controlled um, emission controls on motorcycles are possible because of developments in microprocessor technology. Okay, cool. let's, let's bring Jim Clash in on this. Um, yeah. The professor engaging with a classic Triumph bike from the 50s. Ooh. No processors, no carbon fibers. And, and by it, the way, beautiful. Beauty's in the eye of the beholder. This is true, but so, not when we're talking about that particular bike. I'm not going to argue with you. Okay, thank you. <laughs> and you're looking at the, the development, the ev evolution of that. Then you get to the emotive side of it. Do you, as an adventure journalist, look at it and say, I would rather have the mechanical, tactile, human contact, or would you rather have something that was more computer-generated? Honestly, um, as a person who does this, not on motorcycles but in race cars, uh, I'd rather have the tactile 
connection with the bike. Yeah. Uh, I don't want everything to be uh, motorized or computerized. Um, honestly, I think they could take racing right now. They could put cars out there, computerized. They could have the drivers sit in the stands and drive them. But nobody would want to do that. They'd never want to see that. Right. People want to see people driving cars. So, again, you can take it to the extreme, but I'd much rather be able to drive the car. I think you're right. And I think it's because what we want to see is the melding of person and machine becoming one. That's the thing that's mm. exciting. Yeah. So you, as a person who has driven in race cars and gone to race car school, and you know that there's a certain um, there's a certain kind of synergy that you must create for yourself with that car. They, they say that, that the butt, when you're in the car, that's what you feel when you're, t when you're turning a corner or whatever. That's what your indicator is. And then your hands follow right. and your feet follow. So you've got to be one with the machine. I got to think that with a motorcycle, there are similar things. And that's what I was going to say to Charles, Please, professor, yes. uh, doctor, is that I think you would agree that I don't think there's any greater uh, human integration with the machine than a person on a motorcycle. So I agree with that completely. And the motorcycle has everything you need and nothing more. And a difference with a car, a place where you're integrated even more so than a car. I live in Arizona. And in, in here, the, when you're in the desert in the summer, it can be 110 degrees. But at the top of a nearby mountain, it can be 70 degrees. Mm. If you're in a car, you get in the car, you turn on the air conditioning, and you get out of the car an hour later, and suddenly you're shocked by the temperature change. If you're on a motorcycle, you're not shocked at all because you feel every minor one degree change in temperature as you go through a shadow, you feel it. You feel the engine vibrate. You feel the road, your, the suspension is much um, more in tune with the road than a typical car suspension, which is supposed to get rid of all the bumps. Motorcycles, you feel the bumps. And the, so it's been said that you like objects or you hate objects depending upon how many senses they appeal to. Like, you could look at a car and go, that's a beautiful car, but, you know, so what? It's an electric car, you can't hear it, it doesn't vibrate, it appeals to your sense of sight. On a motorcycle, it's your sense of sight, the sense of sound, the vibration, the sense of smell. Every one of your senses is engaged. So either you, if you like them, you like them a lot, if you hate them, you hate them a lot. I'm not a motorcyclist. Uh, uh, a lot of reasons why that never happened in my life. Um, with a rider, it seems that rider becomes an active part of the weight transference, and therefore that must be, correct me if I'm wrong, the real feeling of enhanced connection to the bike. A motorcycle weighs, let's say, 400 pounds, and a rider with his leathers and helmet and the like may weigh, let's say, 200 pounds. Yeah. So that's a significant fraction of the overall weight. A third yeah. is the rider. In a car, the, the driver is a much smaller fraction of the overall weight. So if, if the driver leans to the left or leans to the right, car really doesn't care much about that. Motorcycle cares a lot about that. So you feel it. And so as a rider, you have much more control and um, you're much more integrated with the 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 automobile, sorry, the motorcycle than any car driver is with the car. Cool. Hey, so listen, we have to take a break. Um, and uh, so um, if you can stick around and Jim, you can stick around, uh, we can get back and get into some of the physics of what you were just talking about being integrated with this machine and how the machine responds to you and how you respond to the machine and the road. Is that cool? 
That's very cool. Uh, gentlemen, please stick with us. Uh, and our audience, please stick with us. We can take that short break. More from Jim Clash, our very good friend Jim Clash. And, of course, the great professor himself, Charles Falco, back after the break. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Elbow grease and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. LED headlights, spoilers, whatever you need eBay Motors has it at affordable prices. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride every time. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Welcome back. I'm Gary O'Reilly. I'm Chuck Nice. Yes, he is. And uh, this is Playing Play with, with science, science, and it's the physics of motorcycling. Yes, the two wheels rather than the four. We have <laughs> Professor Charles Falco with it. You're off again, aren't you? Yeah, I am. You are. Sorry. Silly. <laughs> right. <laughs> Professor Charles Falco is with us. And, of course, adventure journalist Jim Clash. Professor, we've just been in the break. The, 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 the conversation's been like a beehive. Um, let's sort of drill down into the science of things. If Jim's on the back of Chris Ulrich's superbike and he's leaning or not leaning, what, in terms of physics and science, is and is not taking place? Please. And what do you want from a rider on the back of a bike? So what you want on the, the person in the back to not do anything, because we've already discussed that the rider and the passenger make up a significant fraction of the overall weight. So if the passenger decides to, as you're partway through a curve, to, to help you out by leaning into the curve, suddenly the bike is leaning much more wow. than you planned for. And on the other hand, if the rider decides, sorry, the passenger decides, I'm scared, this, I'm leaning way over, we're going to fall over, I would have sit upright. Right. Again, it throws, throws you way off. And so you want the, the, um, the passenger just simply to sit upright with respect to the bike, not with respect to earth. Right. So in the... Um, the uh, worldview of sitting on the motorcycle, they're always sitting bolt upright. Okay, so if we take the single rider, um, particularly someone in the MotoGP, for instance, where the, the curves are tight and fast and it's banked, it's flat, it always looks as if you don't need to put your knee down and lean like that. That's just you showing off. But there is some valid science behind that, I'm sure. You know, absolutely. And uh, in science, I mean, in physics, if a student um, submits some um, elementary quiz, and they call something centrifugal force, mm. centrifugal force, then they get graded off because there is no such thing as centrifugal force. You failed. It's, <laughs> it's centripetal force. The force is inward. Right. However, when you're on a motorcycle and you're going around a curve really fast, you would swear anything that the force is throwing you outwards, that the force is throwing toward the outside. So what you want to do is you need to balance that that centripetal force, which is pulling inward, with the force that's pushing you out. It, the, the ideal way of doing that is if you were leaned over all the way, except you have no traction there, so you can't do that. So you do need to lean as far as you possibly can to lower the center of gravity and to balance the forces. Okay, because I'm the non-rider here, um, counter-steer? Is that something that goes on in racing? So, and I've, I've, I can tell you the term. I haven't a clue really what it means. Please open that box for me. Yeah. So, actually, um, 
way back when I was in graduate school, I tried to make a, a uh, Super 8 movie about counter-steering. Ah. And where I was sitting on, I had a friend following me. I was sitting on the back of somebody else's motorcycle, facing backwards, filming this. And the concept of counter-steering is counterintuitively, if you are going down the road and you want to turn left, you push on the left handlebar. You, it's as if you're turning the, the wheel to the right in order to turn left. That just doesn't seem right. Right. What is happening is because of the moment of inertia of this heavy mass of a spinning wheel, when you push that direction, it actually flops the bike over to the left. You want to go to the left, you're pushing in the left handlebar, which, like I said, makes you think you're going to go to the right, but it flops the bike over to the left. And now, instead of riding on the center of the tire, you're on the edge of the tire where the, the, um, the circumference is less. So you turn to the left. And that's what counter-steering is. And the thing is, it's so natural that many people have been riding many years, uh, can't describe it. They, they have to think about it. They have to get on the motorcycle to do it because you just do it. You, it's, um, it you, you're not solving Newton's equations and deciding which way to push. You, that, that's in your neurons. Jim had something uh, that you wanted Thank to ask. Thank you, by the way, Professor. Yeah, for that answer. Yeah, yes. that, by Jim, the way, that was a great, a great yeah. explanation uh, of counter steer. My, my thought really was uh, when I was on the back of that motorcycle at 140 miles an hour, and that was on a straightaway, and then we went through the corners uh, on, a, on a course at much slower speeds, but still pretty fast. Um, I wasn't thinking about centripetal force. I wasn't thinking about um, moving anywhere on the You're bike. About holding I, on. I was just shaking. That's what I was doing. <laughs> and and somehow I was able to hold on to a handle uh, that was in front of him, but uh, that was a heck of an experience. Yeah. So, uh, Professor, um, uh, um, thinking of, of steering and pulling the bike down. So can you go through what's happening with the gyroscopic forces of the motorcycle? And when you see guys kind of pull off, you're you're actually not leaning. You're pulling that bike down so that it can get on the edge to go around. Then you crane your head and you look around the corner. I don't really know exactly the principle behind that. I just know that that's how you do it because that's how you're taught to do it. You look around the corner and the bike goes around the corner. and But you're literally hanging off the bike and you're pulling it down because the bike is trying to stand up. So can you go through the gyroscopic forces that are at play there? Okay, so the main gyroscopic force, both wheels have the gyroscopic force on them, but the, the main one that you've got control over is the front wheel. Mm -hmm. So you have the front wheel, the tire, and the wheel weigh, well, I should know the number, but I don't, more than 10 pounds. And it's spinning at fairly high RPM. So there, the moment of inertia is very high. It does not want to turn. This is the experiment maybe in elementary physics labs that are done where the instructor sits on a stool that can spin around. And with just a, a bicycle wheel, which is much lighter, spinning at a much lower speed, turns the bicycle wheel, and the moment of inertia causes the, um, the stool to spin. Motorcycle is like that, except times 100. So when you try to turn the wheel, it's trying to turn, you turn the handlebars, you try to, the wheel does not want to do this. And if you evaluate where, what the torques are, the torque causes the motorcycle to be pushed over sideways. And this is how you control things. You 
with the wheel, you're pushing and pulling rather than turning right. to pull it down. And then you look into the curve and then just writer feedback, you, um, you've learned through trial and error that if you uh, turn it a little bit too far, you end up in the weeds on the inside or you end up in the weeds on the outside. So you've learned through bitter experience just the right amount to turn to go through the uh, curve on the right line. Right. And, and uh, the only difference between uh, you and, and uh, me and uh, a great MotoGP rider is they do this much, much better than we can even think of. While, while, Professor, while we're sort of getting down into the physics of, of mo- motorcycle racing, we spoke about the center of gravity with Formula One race cars and how the lower it is, the better. Is there still a similar effect for motorcycles as opposed to their four-wheel counterparts? Yes, absolutely. So you want the center of gravity as low as possible. If you have a really high center of gravity, if you put like the fill of the, the gas tank is actually a good example because you have um, a number of gallons at eight pounds per gallon, a lot of weight up high, which is what you don't want mm. because there, if you can imagine you're leaned over a little ways, but you have a moment arm with a lot of weight over a long distance from the road, which is trying to flip the bike the other direction. Ideally, all the weight would be right at ground level, and then you don't have to worry about that at all. So many years ago, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, Honda made the first gold wing motorcycle, not a racing motorcycle, and they, they recognize this. Everybody knows this. Everybody recognized it, but the problem is motorcyclists are very conservative. We don't buy motorcycles that don't have gas tanks where gas tanks are supposed to be. They gave the motorcyclists a fake gas tank up high, <laughs> but they put the gasoline down low with a fuel pump. And wow. so they had the center of gravity low where it needed to be, and they gave conservative buyers the, the fuel tank that they wanted to think it was a fuel little, tank. A little comfort tank. Yeah, that's yeah. brilliant. What it's a brilliant a idea. I had, yeah. I had no idea that was that, that little history behind the gold. So if, if you do, if you're able to lower the center of gravity, do you then, are you t- can you, does it affect it adversely? Must do. The, the distance between the wheels, the wheelbase itself? The engine design affects the wheelbase. So if you have a, um, a Ducati, which has a L-shaped engine, mm-hmm. one cylinder is facing forward, that just means you can't have the wheel, the front wheel back very far. So it, it makes for a longer motorcycle because of that. If you have um, a BMW has both cylinders sideways, so it's not restricting where the front wheel can be, and they're down low. So it has a low center of gravity. Hmm. The, so the, um, the design does affect of, uh, um, the for- performance of the motorcycle. Raymond Lowy, the designer of the Greyhound bus, the Studebaker Avanti, a great American designer. Actually, it was a French designer, but we, we claim him as an American designer. We'll let you. Coined the, he coined the term Maya. It was a responsibility of the, the designer to give the customer the most advanced MA, yet acceptable YA design. So if you lower the center of gravity, but you take away the fuel tank, it doesn't it may be a better design, but if nobody buys it, you failed as a designer. Wow, that's very cool. It's always, it's always a, um, I, 
a game, let's say, that between the designers and the motorcyclists to try to sneak higher, uh, higher performance designs onto a conservative um, buying crowd. So um, can you break this down? Because Jim was telling us that uh, in racing uh, a car, and I know that this is the same principle in riding a motorcycle, whether you're racing or not, and that is you're going into a sharp turn and you always brake and downshift, okay, going into the turn, and then you throttle going through and out of the turn. So you slow down and then you speed up. So why is it always slow in and accelerate out? Why, what, is there a physics reason for that? Um. It depends on the tires. The, the optimum way of getting through a curve has varied with time, and not, not simply due to fashion. It's varied by how rigid the, the chassis were made at the time, how wide the tires were, and how well they, and how much horsepower an engine had. Uh-huh. So what people have, um, there's this concept of called squaring the corner, that the motorcycles have enough horsepower now that you can be leaning into the curve and you, if you are one of these skilled MotoGP riders, you give acceleration to the um, uh, the bike while you're in the curve and actually break the rear wheel loose. It skids. And so it starts sliding to the outside. And, and then you stop it from skidding. You automatically change the way the the direction the motorcycle was aimed from where it was to toward the end of the curve. Right. And so by squaring the curve this way, because you have the horsepower to do it, you can get through the curve faster. You couldn't have done that 50 years ago. Ah, so it's interesting. Like I say, it's, it's not a matter of fashion. It's a matter of the, the exploiting the technological capabilities of the time. So the technology has now enabled you to not just overcome some of the physics, but utilize it to your own advantage. Wow. So now then, then you go on to it. All right. Okay. So this becomes function and form. We've formula one guys will tell you it's all about the tar dialing. The driver could be anybody, but if the tires aren't doing what they should be doing, <laughs> then this thing won't happen. What kind of evolution? Because uh, I mean, the, uh, a motorcycle tire is, is, is rounded and not kind of flat like a slick for an F1 car, and you're able to ride both edges of the tyre. So the the tyre technology must be vastly improved over the years. It, it, it's incredibly improved. When you see a 1950s motorcycle parked next to a uh, 2018 motorcycle, it's almost hilarious, the difference in, in width of the tyres. Yes. The yeah. tyres on a modern motorcycle, is just they're just gigantic. Yeah. So, Surface area is is a major component. A motorcycle will never go through a curb as fast as a Formula One car, because motorcycles only have two wheels. Right. And there's that limits the amount of rubber that's on the road at any one time. And and the wheels have to be rounded. The tires have to be rounded to go through. Whereas a Formula One car, the always there's a um, you know a a linear. Uh, yeah, section flat. in contact with the road. They're flat and, yeah, flat and, and flat surfaced to surface. But, yeah. yeah, and so they always will have that advantage. Cool. Man, I can't believe we're out of time. Oh, but before you go, Professor, okay, I have go one, because you were involved in this uh, art and science of the motorcycle at the Guggenheim, you must have a favorite. Ooh, Gary, way to go. Oh, Professor. What favorite art 
or, or science of the motorcycle, do you have one motorcycle that oh. you look at and go, uh-huh. oh, yeah. What's the most beautiful motorcycle? Okay, so uh, my first answer, I often get to ask this, is I, if, if it's a parent, I said you have children. How many do you have? Which is your favorite? Oh, I can tell you my favorite right now. I have three, and I have a favorite right now. I'll tell you. Okay, so most people aren't willing to do that. They're, they're, they're willing <laughs> most to people say, are, like, Chuck. If you push them a little bit, they'll say, I love them equally. And I say, yeah, I didn't ask you that. I asked you which is your favorite. Yeah. So there was a French motorcycle that um, it was all enclosed. Every time I walked by that motorcycle, I broke into a smile. And so just based on the fact that it's such a happy motorcycle, maybe that's my favorite. But I really do like them all. I mean, that um, Charles, name that beast. Um, look up the catalog of the art of the motorcycle. French motorcycle from right. the 1920s. Oh, oh. 1930s. Oh, so, oh, so, oh, oh bit of Art Nouveau, bit of, uh, bit of modernist. Can I ask you yeah. one question? Yeah. Please, Jim, yeah, ask away, ahead. sir. This is, this is off the record. Obviously, nobody can hear us. Yes. Except for millions of people. What's the fastest you've ever been on a motorcycle? Okay, so um, I have a, I don't know the, the number because when you're going really fast on a motorcycle, you don't want to be looking look. at the speedometer. But <laughs> I, good point. One night, <laughs> one night um, in a play, there's this rule of thumb, which is so far work, that if you don't want to speed closer than 20 miles from a donut shop. If you're further than 20 miles from a donut shop, <laughs> it's probably okay. So most of the country, you can't see like this. There are many places like this. So one of my motorcycles, the test reports say it goes 156 miles an hour. Mm-hmm. And I went flat out for 20 miles at night, uh, focused on my headlight beam. because. So I assume I went 156 miles an hour. Yeah, that's, that's a good. That's a good clip. Yeah, that's. I, 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 I do like the donut reference. Thank you for that. <laughs> I must admit that, that that's yeah that has put. It's it's my version of the French motorcycle. Yeah. <laughs> put a smile on my face. Well, dag on it. We gotta we gotta wrap this up. We but have, uh, professor, um, you are fascinating. Yeah, we've talked and for ages. Let me just say, uh, stay vertical, my friend. Yeah. Okay. Uh, thank you, professor. Or, thank you so much for your time. It's it's yeah been eye opening. Very much so. Thank you. Stay safe on those bikes. Thank you. And to Jim Clash. Yes, Jim. Thank thank you. Thank you, guys. This has been great. I learned a lot about motorcycles today. Yeah, well, you're not alone. (laughs) What a a renaissance guy that guy is. Oh, gotta love the professor, man. All right. Well, that's it for our show. The physics of two-wheeled motorsport. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Thank you, Jim. Thank you to Charles Falco, the professor. Well, yeah. Art, science, physics, everything. Mm -hmm. We've enjoyed our show. Um, We look forward to our company next time.